This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Intner. The Broadcast Network Upfront presentations are happening in New York City, and in this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into what they are and why they're such important dates on the calendar that I know I have circled every year as, as a journalist. So, Amanda, let's start out simple. What are the Upfronts? It sounds like a simple question, but it's, it's a long and loaded answer. At the most basic, the upfronts are a practice for selling advertising. Importantly, we can break them into really two different components. First, there are the upfront presentations, and then there's the period of upfront sales commitments. So the presentations we, we'll talk about here in a second, but to understand the sales process, and really when people reference the upfronts, what they're talking about is a period of time, and it's, it's uncertain. It's, sometimes it happens in the course of a week. Other times it, it takes over a month. And what happens is at some point in late May, it starts, um, and what it is is basically a renegotiation between networks, for the most part, in some cases channels, and the various media buying agencies about how much money they're willing to commit for the next season. And so basically, in, in a typical year, anywhere from 75 to 90% of the coming season's advertising is committed uh, over this in this period that might be a week, that might be two months. Um, but this isn't the advertising that's in places like specials or sports, and it's not the placement agreements. But basically, this is a, a practice that secures for the networks going into their fall season some degree of sense of commitment of advertiser support really for the whole year. Right. Now, to talk about the presentations, what happens during your standard upfront presentation? Uh, it's a combination of a number of things. Um, mostly, it's a dog and pony show um, with some PowerPoint slides thrown in. And it's important to keep in mind that the audience for these presentations is advertisers and ad buyers. And so it's very different from the presentation of the network that we typically see in advertisements about the network that are aimed at viewers. And the goal of the presentation is really to excite the audience, uh, because this is this presentation that's happening in theory right before this big ad buying period begins. And so what the networks do is they bring out a lot of their stars and their talent. Uh, increasingly, they hire celebrities and performers. The entertainment value of the events, I'd say, has been climbing steadily. But buried within all of this somewhere is a series of slides that lists the advertising attributes of the networks and the schedule. And so much like Lake Wobegon, everyone, every network that is, is somehow number one in something. So it's an attempt by the network to put a spin on their standing. Uh, and also there's a fair bit of hope that the show that they put on and the re refreshments that everyone has afterward compensate for the potential weakness of, of what is being shown. Of course, this is historically, importantly, when the new schedule, the fall season, gets announced. Uh, it used to be much more of a mystery, but more and more the networks are announcing ahead of time what shows they're picking up. Usually the week before you'll see a series of posts on the trades that are just like such and such series are being picked up. 
Right, and increasingly we're even getting hints about what the schedule is going to be. But that too is an important part of the presentation. What are the what are next fall shows, and and what is this going to be the schedule? Yeah, they'll often show a series of trailers for the new shows, which actually I, I find interesting that they get more play online now than they do actually in the presentation. Um, like the tra- they'll post all the trailers on YouTube, and something that you always kind of see is the conversation about like well, this trailer isn't really much of a trailer as a summary of the pilot because they're trying to sell this show to the advertisers. Right, or at least sort of preview what's there. And and importantly, a lot can change between now and fall. Often, depending on what kind of feedback the network's receiving, sometimes shows are recast, uh, sometimes pilots are reshot, uh, and even the schedule that comes out isn't by any means cast in stone. No, usually you'll see one or two small changes or switches between now and fall, but something that really, with the, within the upfront presentations, they always happen in the second or third week of May. They're always at this time of year, so why do you think the networks stick to such a strict schedule? So this is part of a, a full year calendar. And I think, you know, if the question is, why does this ritual persist at this particular time? I think it's, it's a fear of, of deviating. Uh, so what would happen? Would, what if a network didn't have a presentation? Well, it would be concerned that as a result that there would be some ramifications in the upfront spending uh, committed to the channel. So I think that is what keeps this part of the practice in mind. I mean, there are advantages and challenges to an industry that's so in sync. Um, in the sense that in, I think you can talk about for different entities, what are the consequences of having such a rigid schedule? What it means that the fall schedules are announced in May, it means that basically all the casting for a new season of programming needs to take place in roughly December and January. Uh, and so that can be an important labor consideration, let's say, for actors and writers who at that point don't know whether the show that they might currently be on will even be continuing. Um, So in in many ways, this very rigid schedule can sometimes create complications. And you'll often see actors take on pilots, sometimes in first position to their current show, which means that they'll go to the new show, or in second position, meaning if their pilot gets picked up, they can, and their series gets picked up, they can't continue with either of them. Right. So it, it can be a complicated set of arrangements. I think the, the big question, if the question is really about why does this happen in May and, and early summer, it's about the fact that this is the, the advertising spending begins in the fall quarter. And so the advantage of having a couple months of advance notice, I mean, it really does help the network have a sense of what kind of revenue they can roughly count on or what kind of what their ad commitments are going to be, even though in truth, the variation year to year is, is not wildly significant. Usually you'll see small single digit percent increases or decreases or something in that range. But and actually, I remember Kevin Riley, um, a couple of years ago, he put out his, you know, death to pilot season presentation where he basically said we're going off cycle. And that I've the Trades have reported that that's a part of why he was canned was because people were getting scared of that deviation from the traditional schedule. Yeah, I think it's there's this time of year. There's always a lot of attention to or calls to or for change in the future. And I've been keeping a fairly close eye on the upfronts for over a decade now. I attended some of them uh, back in 2005, um, and and also sat in with an agency during the period that the buying was occurring just to try to better understand this phenomenon. 
And I'd, I have to say that a decade ago, you know, sort of what were the big things that were happening in 2005? Well, it was a call toward a year-round schedule um, that was going to um, eliminate the need for pilot season. And, and I think that really hasn't completely happened. I think probably the biggest force of change has been the cable channels and now the broadband distributed services such as Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon. They don't premiere most of their shows in the fall and maybe hold back to mid some for mid-season. They premiere year-round. Although year-round schedule has been a buzzword that I've heard for past five or six years, like within the upfronts. Well, certainly, and, and I think it is the case that much more is, is released uh, in, at this point, it seems uh, January and March are as valuable times to come out as a new broadcast program. But I think cable's practices of, of the shorter seasons, and, and really, I don't think, I think it's impossible to even have a sense of a consistent cable season. So I think in many ways for viewers, especially those who aren't necessarily even sitting down to watch when things are, are actually quote-unquote on, uh, a lot of these practices just sort of seem antiquated. Right. Now, let, let's actually move further into the presentation. So what do advertisers get from these presentations? Well, a lot of shrimp cocktail. Um, <laughs> I mean, after these events, and, and importantly, these, these events are somewhat epic. And so sort of to your point about the fact that there's more available now on a platform like YouTube than is actually shown in the presentations, well, that, that speaks to the fact that, you know, after two to three hours, people just don't want to sit any longer and, and hear any more of the, the raw, raw, go, whatever network show. So I think advertisers, you know, there's some, definitely some entertainment value to the presentation. Certainly a bad presentation uh, is a hint that things are not going well at a network and it might be, you know, a bit of blood in the water that might have ramifications then in terms of how that network is considered when, when the buying commitments are, are laid out. I think more important is what advertisers receive in exchange for buying in the upfront. Upfront purchases are guaranteed. So advertisers are guaranteed a certain number of exposures in a way that's different than if they buy at other times. So if the initial placement, so basically you know, the network finds out what the commitment is and the network you know, puts the commercials throughout their schedules in the places that they think will accumulate the number of views that the advertiser purchased. Do the networks place the advertisements or do the advertisers pick the shows? The networks do, and that's an important um, wide misunderstanding of, of the way all of this works. And so if that initial placement doesn't accomplish whatever the, the sold amount was, then the advertisers are given what are called make goods. And make goods are basically free advertisements that then would hopefully uh, get the number of views up to the number of what the advertiser purchased. So that's if like a show doesn't achieve the rating the network is planning for it, then the advertisers will then be given other ads to make up for that show for one show's low ratings. Not necessarily one show, the, the whole buy. The whole buy. Right. Okay. So it's, the, the buy is often a certain number of viewers. It may be of a certain demographic, depending on the good. A lot of times the general buy is, is, is 18 to 49, um, but a more specific good might be 18 to 34 or even 18 to 34 year old men. Or so. maybe in CBS 24 to, or 25 to 54. Maybe. And I mean, I think it, it it isn't about who the network actually is able to bring. Um, it's who the advertisers want to buy. Right. And it continues to be the case that advertisers want to purchase younger people. Yes. So the other way to buy, just to give you a sense, is in what's called the scatter market. And the scatter market is basically whatever advertising availability is left after those upfront 
commitments are made, uh, typically sold on a quarter by quarter basis. Scatter buys are not guaranteed. So in that case, then you are buying an ad and at a certain, in a certain show at a certain time and you know, whatever you get is what you get. Um, and then the other risk of waiting until scatter is that inventories in certain shows, often the ones that uh, advertisers might be most interested in being in, are sold out. Uh, so the combination of not having as much control over where your message is and um, especially not coming with a guarantee, um, those are all reasons that push advertisers into participating in the upfronts. Right. I mean, usually, I, actually, you'll see scatter deals, like on a big show, you'll hear, you know, oh, the scatter market for something like Empire is huge. People are trying to push their way in. Versus like, and that tends to be where scatter market ten gets talked about most, uh, is in these, uh, is in the big hits, advertisers are trying to push their way in, right? Right. Well, so in, in that case, so I could imagine last season, since Empire was a mid-season replacement, that maybe there was some scatter availability. Right. And I, I would be surprised if there was much of an opportunity to buy Empire outside of the upfronts this season, since everyone knew that it was an established hit. And, and still, it's important, I think, one of the things that was really valuable about my own research on, on the upfronts um, was understanding how little shows are actually talked about um, on the advertising side. Really? It's, it's, it's all numbers. Um, how many viewers are watching this? So it's not necessarily what the show is. It matters that the, the rating of who's watching it. Yeah. How many of which kind of eyeball is in X, Y, or Z. And so I think th there's long been uh, this perception of, of advertisers, you know, sort of very closely micromanaging where their, their advertisers are, or their advertisements are seen. And, and there are rare occasions where that, that is relevant and that's the case. And, and part of the, the business of the buying agency is to then, is to, as the season plays out, to keep track of where their clients' messages appeared and often to screen those episodes ahead of time just to make sure there's no potential conflict with the content. Uh, but in terms of the decision-making, it's, it's all about eyeballs, and it's not at all really about the kind of conversations that fans of TV, like you and I, have about content. And, and that's interesting because usually you think like, oh, advertisers are going to like a show because, you know, it's a good show. Some some networks try to sell themselves as a home of quality content, I, I guess, to the viewing public. And you kind of think that that would go to advertisers too, but maybe it doesn't. Well, only to the degree that that quote unquote quality correlates with certain demographic right. features. And so I, the, when I went to the upfront presentation for NBC in, in 2004, and like the slides that they were showing about you know, what they were advertising were very different than the features of NBC that they would advertise if I were watching NBC, right? And so they were talking about things like how upscale their audience was. And they were showing the number of shows that they had that had audiences that over-indexed with incomes of, let's say, over $100,000. And so it's those characteristics that advertisers are thinking about and buyers are talking about. And so when they're talking about a content, the content of the show, it's only to the degree that that content in the past, let's say, has tended to bring in particularly valued uh, audience members. That's really, really interesting. And yet within the upfronts, it, it's not just the advertisers that are getting something from it nowadays. In the world of social media, with journalists go to the upfronts and tweet about them, it how have they come to get a broader meeting to people who don't necessarily belong to this group of people who are buying uh, ads? 
Uh, I think there's more, certainly more coverage than there has been in the past. Um, but I, th I still think that the probably upfront is, an, is a term that goes right over the head of, of, of most viewers. Um, and, and in truth, the upfronts are an important ritual. They also even play a business function. But I think what's captivated me in a way, of, as I've seen the coverage of upfronts increase, is the way in which there really is no check and balance, right? And so often, you know, as I've sort of monitored from a distance, you know, I look for the article that, you know, Variety or Hollywood Reporter will put out you know, mid-June, July, whenever the business is done for the year that sort of pulls it all together. You know, this is what the commitments were, you know, because there's a lot how, of... How do they go up and down? There's a lot of reporting that's speculative, let's right. say, until all the business is, is finished. Uh, but there's no companion, let's say, article that comes out, you know, say this time, that actually has any kind of data about, well, what level of commitments actually did the advertisers follow through on? Mm -hmm. Because they do have the option to pull their advertising quarter by quarter. And so in many ways, you know, the, the upfronts tend to be this number that so much attention is paid to, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily a number of any guarantee or certainty. And so I, I, think, I think it's important to think about it as much as ritual as business practice. So... What can advertisers or listeners or re or readers of coverage do to see through kind of the PR talk that happens about that the networks give, you know, as you said, everyone's number one at something. How, how can we kind of see through this to get to actually what is important from these presentations? I think first, knowing that this is all is a big show and pageant is, is important and sort of understanding and accepting that. Um, obviously, any time you have sort of this kind of PR environment where you have executives speaking about their networks, and well, obviously, they're doing so in, in, a, in a way that we should be skeptical of. They're never going to say anything that's, you know, truly lays anything actually bare, let's say. At the end of the day, even what we might call the number, which is the percentage that a network might be receiving from each agency, either above or below last year's commitment, even the number really doesn't matter. Um, because what's happened, you know, let's say over even more than the last decade, is that steadily more and more has been packaged in with the upfront deal that has inflated the value. And so are we looking at something like cable, the broadcast network will sell cable networks alongside it, like Fox will sell commitments to F with FX and Fox Movie Channel and things like that? Right. So that's one thing that's happened. So it used to be that the cable, the conglomerate would sell their um, broadcasting cable separately. And so then, yes, exactly as you said, they brought the, the cable piece in. But also things such as uh, deals for added value, things like product placement, a lot of those are, are you know, sort of casually built in. Um, and so I think everyone recognizes the politics of what the numbers are and the need often for the industry to, to seem healthy. And so, so the number isn't even the important part. Um, and again, as I said, because the advertisers can cancel the commitments before the quarter. So what signs should listeners look for about change in the industry through upfronts and maybe the coverage that surrounds it? One of the most telling things is the pace of the sales. And so when do you, when is there any kind of confirmation that uh, different networks are closing deals with different agencies? How quickly does the process go? Typically, uh, a shorter process means that it's more competitive. People are afraid of getting shut out of the market. If the process you know, drags on past uh, Memorial Day into June, then, then that might be a sign that um, advertisers are not willing to pay what broadcasters want. 
Often there is some sort of general story that comes out of the upfront. You know, over the last, over the, let's say, the first decade of the 2000s, a lot of that story often had to do with how much cable how much more cable was receiving um, and maybe the minimal gains of broadcast. I mean, because they're often now lumped together, it's it's often hard to have a sense of that. And I think now a lot of the story surrounds DVR viewing and how much uh, DVR viewing advertisers are going to pay for, whether or not they're going to pay for, say, commercials within three days or commercials within seven days. That's a story that's kind of been dominating the past couple of years. Yeah, that's a good point. It was definitely the C plus seven was the discussion last year. In other words, the, the number of networks that were writing deals for counting advertising as long as it was viewed within a week. And it, there, there's been some suggestion that that, that number even, that, that doesn't capture a lot of viewing. Um, I'd be surprised if, if many deals are written that incorporate significantly more than that. Interestingly, a number of the agencies uh, and, and networks have talked about using some different metrics. Uh, so it will be, I think, in the upfront, it may be hard to tell uh, how significant those purchases are uh, again and it would be valuable to sort of have some sort of end of the year recap to find out whether ad sales really went any differently because they were sold with different metrics right now it's not just the broadcasters that are presenting you know to advertisers over the past couple months cable networks and cable organizations and online organizations and print media have been presenting to advertisers too so do these presentations carry a different meaning than the broadcast Right. So again, we have to pull apart the way that upfronts often categorizes, you know, is this term that's used for both the presentations and the ad sales. And so the ad sales piece is largely confined to television and, and conventional broadcast and to a degree cable distributed television. Uh, we just finished uh, what are called the, or what have come to be called the new fronts, um, which is this uh, week event or so in which the broadband distributor entities such as YouTube and Hulu uh, hold events, um, sort of presentations on the same scale as the upfronts. But importantly, you know, some of those are not even advertiser supported. Uh, they're not buying and selling advertising really in the same way as broadcasters anyhow. And so in those cases, those are really just presentations. They're events to, um, that draw attention to the programming and the plans. And, and big news did come out of last week. Uh, both Hulu and Amazon made announcements about sort of changes about in the way that they're packaging things. Hulu apparently is putting together its own streaming service um, that will be multi-channel. So um, certainly we'll- Kind of like on the line lines of Sling TV or PlayStation View. Yes, but yeah. what's interesting to me about Hulu is, is again, the ownership connection actually to the studio. Right, And right. so, you know, if, if, in trying to understand what this is, you know, so this is sort of like what CBS All Access is, uh, except it's those other, it's ABC, Fox, and, and NBC, and I think what's what remains unclear at this point is how many of the cable channels that are owned by those companies get included, um, and what will happen, or, or what CBS will do, whether it will continue to go it alone, whether it will have an option to go to join in. I mean, Les Moonves has said, uh, if he gets the right deal, he'll join. Sure. And honestly, the thing that it's not surprising to me that this is the new strategy. What's surprising to me is that they're still finding a way to do it with three very different corporate structures uh, working together. So we'll see. We'll see. And I mean, Hulu has been owned by the three structures for years. So and they've kind of worked together. Sometimes you hear buzz about one of them maybe trying to leave or something, but they've held together. Yes. Yeah, so, and then that raises all sorts of questions about how competitive uh, these entities actually are. 
Uh, so anyway, going back to the cable up fronts, and so what happened, how oh, it's you know, probably close to 15, maybe even 20 years ago, cable channels in their effort, and you have to remember that not long ago, cable channels were like, you know, the, the redheaded stepchild of the television industry, and, and cable programming was, you know, something to be laughed at, I and mean, literally, regularly, the butt of late night jokes was you know, cable programming. So we've come a long way in 20 years, and, and part of that effort to gain legitimacy and to be seen as equivalent to the broadcast networks, the, the cable channels began hosting their own presentations. And so that... Including like ESPN and Turner this year are having presentations the same week as the broadcasters. Sure. And so it just, I think those are entirely legitimate and make great sense in terms of the, the, the number, the, the ad dollars spent at ESPN will probably rival those spent in many other places. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, it's an opportunity for, for those channels to, to do the same thing that the broadcasters are doing. Um, significantly, I did read as well that, that some cable channel groups that have held up, upfront presentations in the past this year chose not to. And I, I'm very curious. I've never seen a number, but I can't even, the, the expense of these events must just be enormous. I mean, paying to fly the talent, paying to rent these large venues, you know, Lincoln Center, Radio City Music Hall in New York. And all the shrimp and champagne. So instead, what I think it's Discovery Group decided to do is they just held a number of, of presentations at the agencies and found that it was probably a more effective way to communicate a lot of information and, and perhaps being just as effective. And, and perhaps this, you know, this era of this grand spectacle is, is perhaps coming to a close and it's just there, the margins in the business perhaps just aren't uh, there anymore. Well, this kind of leads us into kind of some more broader points about where kind of the upfronts fit. So where do the upfronts fit in the broader context of pilot season? Well, historically, we would view this as the conclusion, right? And so come August, just a few months from now for those poor development executives that are just, you know, struggling to get their lives back now, um, they again will be barraged with hundreds of pitches a day um, as they try to figure out what ideas to develop into scripts and then what scripts to develop into pilots. And that takes us then to yeah, January is there. When you have that huge casting deluge of all of all these shows trying to hire, like, largely from the same pool of actors. Certainly. Well, and I think the other um, big challenge anymore is also writing talent and producing talent, especially given um, how much television, how much scripted television is being produced across broadcast cable uh, and the broadband distributed portals. So it, 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 it's, the, it's the end of this year-long process. Um, but as we talked about earlier, there is certainly more and more variability in the schedule. Shows are developed off schedule now. Plans will be made. Plans will be changed. And I think the, the big question is, you know, at what point does this become clearly a vestige of another era? And you know, there's been complaint and criticism of this process you know, since its origins, um, but it's persisted because it must be serving some function. There, there must be some reason why the networks just don't want to change their system for, for whatever reason. Oh, I think, you know, a pattern that has existed this long, I think, is, is you know, entire work routines are built around this right. yearly schedule. Uh, and so I think that sense of when do you do different parts of your job, especially something like a development exec who's doing different things in, in different stages, I think that job becomes a lot more challenging if you're hearing pitches, reading scripts, 
and greenlighting pilots. And casting. And trying to schedule all at the same time, yeah, right? Yeah. So, and again, the need sort of to have, even if it's only loosely fixed, to have a fixed schedule at this moment to present to the advertisers who are ultimately... You know, paying the check that supports all of this. Um, yeah, they're they're the people. They're the backbone behind which the television, or at least the broadcast television industry, is built. Absolutely. Well, yes, that's more complicated, but, but not for another day. It, but uh, in a world where a lot of viewing is time shifted today, uh, do the schedules that are announced at upfronts carry the same, more less meaning than they did say when you were at the upfronts uh, a decade ago? Let's see. At that point, I had a DVR and was watching almost exclusively DVR, but it was probably like 10% of the population, and there were no VO- there was no real VOD at that point. So I would say definitely they play much less of a role, and this ritual was certainly built in an era in which viewers had to watch live. And, and now, without a doubt, time-shifting devices you know, are, are widely used and, and have been available for over a decade. Um, but but not that long. It's really just been since 2013 that video on demand has has been robust for uh, cable subscribers. I think the bigger question here is is about viewing behavior. Uh, clearly, there's been this phenomenon. I'd say in the last two seasons of viewers waiting come fall to see what the buzz about different shows is after their first episodes air before they commit to viewing. Whether or not, let's say they bomb out of the gate, like first episode, low number, the show's going to get pulled. Exactly. I think people have become a little bit more savvy. Um, but there's also this this real situation of sort of overwhelmed viewing. And there's Peak TV. Right. Well, there's only so many hours in the day that one can devote to watching television. And so, yes, you know, go ahead, launch a bunch of new shows, but it's going to mean that if you didn't cancel something that someone was watching, you know, maybe they have to pull something out. Now, I think it's an, it's an interesting thought experiment to imagine how the upfronts work if television isn't as defined by schedule. Now, I still could see there being considerable value in having this moment in which, let's say, a network announces a, a new slate of programming. Let's say it's, it's, it could be released Netflix styles or all in complete seasons over the course of the year. I think there's still considerable value in that sort of focused attention. Um, but that I suspect is still long off. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great note to move on to what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching this week? I've been watching Billions on Showtime. I don't have a lot more to say than that. Uh, it's not again. I, mean, it's, it was, I was curious. I heard a lot of good things. It's it's interesting. It's uh, it's good political intrigue, which is one of my favorite you know programming focuses. But um, I don't know, like sort of everything else these days, I'm not in love with it. How about you, Alex? What are you watching? Well, uh, in the past couple weeks, I was able to go home, see my family, and one of the things I tend to do when I go home is I tend to go to New York and see some theater. So I know we've traditionally done TV in this segment, but I'm going to pull out that I saw She Loves Me on Broadway. Uh, It's a roundabout theater company's revival of the 1960s musical about the guy and the girl who work in a shop together in secret, and they, you know, they hate each other in the shop, but they're actually corresponding to each other through a Lonely Hearts Club. And it, it's like the, it's actually the story that You've Got Mail is based on. And this production, you know, it's fun, there's lots of singing, there's dancing, it's got uh, Zachary Levi of Chuck fame, uh, who is just fantastic, has so much charm, Laura Benanti 
uh, is a Tony winner at this point. Her talent is just undeniable. Jane Krakowski, great supporting actress. Th- this was just a really, really fun afternoon uh, in-, in the theater, and I really, really enjoyed it. Great. So, I, and, and because apparently I can't get away with not saying TV, uh, I watched the Good Wife finale. Which she's not going to tell me about because I am many episodes behind. Oh, are you? Okay. Uh, So I won't say specifically what happens. I'll just say only that I wish it was something different. Uh, I wish, you know, they tend, they, what they did was they closed the story they had been telling for their entire season. They didn't kind of, a lot of series finales will kind of pull a retrospective, kind of look back, kind of remind viewers why they loved the show in the first place. And this really, really didn't. Do you think that was a function of the timing of the decision to end the show? And it, it sort of trickled out slowly. First, that the kings weren't coming back, and then I, mean, I think the kings knew that this was the ending they wanted, because um, kind of no matter what, they ha- had a seven-year story in mind, and that's what kind of confused me most hmm. was that they did have this set end date, and you know I don't know if it was necessarily a, a function of the timing, but if you believe what the kings are saying, that they knew what they were going to do. You know, that, that doesn't really play to me because they saw they had a conclusion. And I, I, I won't go into any more detail <laughs> than that to prevent spoilers, but it really was, it didn't feel like a fitting finale to really what was a remarkable broadcast show. Well, hopefully May won't be filled with many more disappointing conclusions. It is a conclusion month for many shows. Yeah, it is. So that's our episode for this week. You can find more episodes of Media Business Matters at amandalots.com, where you can also find links to our iTunes and RSS feeds where you can subscribe. If you subscribe, the episodes are there right away. And you can also rate and review us on iTunes, which helps us get noticed by uh, others in the podcast community. You can follow us on Twitter. You can find Amanda at Dr. TV Lots. And you can find me at Alex Entner, Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R, where you can also tweet us listener questions. We will open the listener mailbag again soon, and we would love to answer your questions on the show. All right, we'll be back in a couple weeks, and we'll be talking Broadway.